This comes from the uh, Things Aren't Always As They Appear file, this story. Apparently the Pope met with his cardinals to discuss a proposal from the Prime Minister of Israel. Said, Your Holiness, said one of the cardinals, the President of Israel wants to challenge you to a game of golf to show the friendship and ecumenical spirit shared by the Jewish and Catholic faiths. The Pope thought it was a great idea, but he had never held a golf club in his hand. He said, um, have we not a cardinal who can go and represent me against the leader of Israel? And the cardinal said, well, none that play golf very well. He says, but there is a man named Jack Nicholas, an American golfer who is a devout Catholic. We can offer to make him an honorary cardinal, then ask him to play the Israeli prime minister as your personal representative. In addition to showing our spirit of cooperation, we should also win the match. Well, everyone agreed it was a great idea. The call was made, and of course, Nicholas thought it was a great idea, and he agreed to play. The day after the match, he reported to the Vatican to inform the Pope of the results. He said, uh, I have some good news and some bad news, Your Holiness. And uh, the Pope said, well, tell me the good news first, Cardinal Nicholas. <laughs> said, well, Your Holiness, I don't like to brag, but even though I've played some pretty terrific rounds of golf in my life, this was the best round of golf that I had ever played. I must have been inspired from above. My drives were long and true. My irons were accurate, purposeful. My putting was perfect. And with all due respect, my play was absolutely miraculous. And the Pope said, well, how could there be bad news? He goes, well, the bad news is I've lost, I lost by three strokes to the rabbi, Tiger Woods. <laughs> well, you know... Things aren't always as they appear at first glance. And it's important a wise person gathers all the facts before coming to any conclusions. And this is certainly true of our spiritual life. You know, knowing that uh, we can be so easily misled and oftentimes swayed, God has gone to great lengths to give us an, an objective tool to measure our spiritual condition. God has given us the Bible to do that. And if you recall uh, from our previous times that we're together, we've learned that the Bible is a lamp unto our feet, that it's a light unto our paths, it shows us where we're standing and tells us where God wants us to head in our life. If you remember, even in our study of the book of James, we learned that we're to be people who gaze intently into this mirror that accurately reflects exactly who we are and what we're all about, exposing all of our flaws. It's one thing to have a person come to you and say, hey, you got a little, you got a little something there on your face. And not really know whether or not. Have you ever done that? I, I mean, this is. I mean, this shouldn't surprise you. Do you ever do that to somebody at dinner? You're out at a restaurant and you just kind of look over the table and go like this, and then they go like this, and then you go, and then they go, and they go, and they just kind of like, and there was nothing ever there to begin with. But it's just a fun little party thing to do sometimes. Just kind of keep it in mind. But, but see, it's one thing to have somebody else point out our flaws, but it's another thing to run into the bathroom, look in the mirror, and go, oh, there is something there, and I need to get it taken care of. Well, see, the Bible is the mirror that God wants us to look into, and he wants us to gaze into it intently, and not just a cursory glance as we go by in life. He wants us to understand what he wants us to see in our own life, so that we can uh, apply those things that he teaches us, and make appropriate application. Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James where we find yet another area that's hindering some of us in our journey towards spiritual maturity. Just as a reminder, it's been a few weeks, and I know some of you probably have forgotten, but I just thought I'd share it with you. We're going through the book of James, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the topic of the book of James, so to speak, is to be mature as a believer. 
to grow towards spiritual maturity. God's goal for every person who has come to faith in Christ is that we would grow into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. That we would ask ourselves the question in this particular case, in this particular situation, what is it that Jesus would do? How would he respond? What would he say? How would he act in this particular environment? And it's really important on our road to spiritual growth that we recognize and understand that there are some definite things that God expects of us. In James chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 6, we read, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. To get a better understanding of what this passage entails, we need to remember what we learned in our previous time together. And if you go back up to chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 17 again, and it introduces this next passage very accurately because he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. It says, Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to be saying, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And as we see, as he introduces this next passage, it it plays upon what we've already learned, and that's this. The question has to be asked, what would cause those of us who claim to know Christ, those of us who claim to be Christians to plan our lives as if God doesn't exist? What would make us say with an arrogant attitude, I'm going to go here or there, and I'm going to be here for such a period of time or there for such a period of time, and I'm going to make, uh, you know, I'm going to engage in business, I'm going to make a profit. Uh, what What would motivate us to say things like that without ever even consulting whether or not that's God's will for our life? And chapter 5 gives us the answer to those questions. What would make any of us be so arrogant as to presume upon the future without first consulting the one who holds the future in his hand? See, the only one who knows definitively what's going to happen the next moment in time is God. Because to God, one day is is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And so God knows the future as well as the past and the present and what's to be expected. He already told us everything that's going to happen. It's all here in the book. All we've got to do is read it and spend some time in it. So what would make us so arrogant to presume upon what we think the future holds in our life? And the answer is given to us in chapter 5. I am going to suggest that the answer to the arrogance in our heart is a spirit of materialism. A spirit of materialism. And materialism simply is the worship of material things. One of the most powerful motivations in the human heart is a motivation to plan a life independently of God because we have a passion for wealth or material things. Think about it. 
what were they saying? We're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to spend this much time or that much time, we're going to engage in business, we're going to make so much money. And what they were doing was they completely ne neglected going to God to see, well, God, is that your leading in our life and is that your will for my life? But it really doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is we're going to go there because we want to do what? We want to make some money. How many of us are guilty of the same thing? We go from one job to the next, and most of the time it's, it's, it's basically motivated by one thing. What? Where can I go to make more money? It's the underlying motivation and passion in most of our lives. At some time or another, you probably watched one of those television shows that took you on a journey of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And you've probably, as you've journeyed on this lifestyle of the rich and famous, thought, you know what? I can get used to that. And if you have, that's okay, because most of us have thought the same thing. Wow, look at that. That'd be great. That's what I need in my life. That's the answer to everything that's going wrong in my life, is I need more money or I need to live like that. If I lived like that, I wouldn't have any problems. Amen. <laughs> You're going to be sorry you said that. <laughs> but that's all right. Because, you see, you know, we can get excited. I mean, think about it. How many times in a course of a week or a course of a day do you hear people passionately excited about what? About an investment that's paid off? About a piece of property that they bought and was like almost nothing and now it's worth like almost everything? A business that they started that was like, we started with nothing and now look at all the stuff we got. And it's this passion and, and it's this, this excitement about, wow, look at, look at how much money I'm making now. Or look at, look at what we want to buy. Look at this, look at this, look at this. Look at this thing right here. Oh, man. Woo! That is sweet. Look at that. Man, that is nice. Would you look at that? Our son's looking at a truck. We're all looking at it with him. <laughs> Everybody he knows is looking at this truck with him. Man, he's excited about it. And that's our case. We all get excited about stuff. I mean, we get excited about what we want to buy or what we have bought. Oh, look what I just bought. Wow. And you're thinking, wow. That's not what you're really thinking. What are you thinking? How can you afford that? We can't afford that. <laughs> wow. We're happy for you. See, what's interesting about this whole idea of, of uh, wealth is that, you know, none of it's necessarily good or bad. You stop and think about it, wealth has the power to help and to bless, but it also has the power built in to corrupt the human heart. And so in this session, what God wants to show us is that he wants his people to be growing beyond materialism. Growing beyond materialism. That's what we're going to co concentrate on. That's what we're going to take a look at. You know, the Christian who's growing in the image of Christ is one who learns how to defeat the problem of materialism and handle possessions in a way that honors God. And God doesn't hesitate to begin to talk about the subject of money in the Bible. He doesn't hesitate about all. Listen carefully to this. Jesus told 38 parables in the New Testament, 16 of which deal with the subject of money. One of every 10 verses in the New Testament mentions possessions. The Bible contains 500 or so verses on prayer, another 500 verses on faith. But there are more than 2,000 verses on money. The question you got to ask yourself is, why? Why does God put such a great emphasis on material things? Why does his word put such emphasis on material possessions and on money? And I think the answer is very simple. Because he knows 
that it is probably the most accurate barometer of our spiritual condition. Jesus said, where our treasures are, that's where our heart is. Possessions and material things and money or the pursuit of it, how we get it, what we do with it, why we want it, is probably the most accurate reflection of our spiritual condition and what we understand about the temporary or the eternal as far as the Word of God is concerned. That's why there's such an emphasis there. In fact, turn with me back a couple of books, books to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, notice what we read in this particular passage. 1 Timothy 6, uh, start with verse 6. We read, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. He says, but those, those who aren't content with the very basics in life, he says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. See, we cannot grow in our Christian lives if we have the wrong view of our possessions. That's why the Bible tells rich believers not to let their wealth go to their heads. After all, their possessions will fade away someday, just like dead grass or the flowers. We saw that in James chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Furthermore, money can tempt us to treat other believers according to their wealth or lack of it. We saw that in the sin of partiality, where we began to look at people as more important than somebody else because of the clothes that they wear, or the, clo- or the car that they drove, or the money that they made, or the position in life that they had, that somehow or another God equates that to being more important in his particular uh, uh, scope of events. And we look at people, we frown on those who have nothing, we, we kiss up to those who do. And the Bible says that that is wrong and it's sin and we need to address that and deal with it. And, it. and it shows a lack of understanding as far as God is concerned as to what material possessions are all about. So as Mark mentioned to you, I've had the last couple of weeks off. I figure we'll break in two hours for lunch at 1130. Oh, if you're visiting, I'm just kidding. <laughs> sort of. Um, but anyway, if, if we don't do that, I've got to warn you, we're going to be covering a lot of territory, so sit back, buckle up, get ready, get your pen out, get your notes out, start making some notes, because I guarantee you, if you're going to grow beyond materialism, you better pay attention to what God has to say, and it will change your life if you apply what you learn. So let's take a look at this passage. Let's go back to James chapter 5. We're going to go through it, take a look at it, and we will see exactly what it is that God wants to learn in this pretty difficult area. And you know what? And it's a very sensitive area. And there isn't a person here that it is not going to apply. Every one of us, there's application for what we're going to discover. First of all, number one, here's what we're going to learn. The concept of materialism. The concept of materialism. Okay? So as we look at this, we need to ask ourselves the question, what exactly is materialism? Listen to me. It is not what you think it is. Materialism is not what most of us think. Most of us think that it has to do with the amount of possessions that we have. How many of you would have thought that that's exactly what it is? It is not that. Materialism is not the amount of possessions that we have because all of us, to one degree or another, have material possessions. Everybody here has material possessions. You've got them on your back. You're wearing them. 
Praise the Lord. But the bottom line is that it has nothing to do with the amount or the, the, the lack of or the amount of material things. It has everything to do with the attitude that you have towards those things. So the first thing that we need to understand is this, that materialism, by definition, as we go through our study, is a sinful or wrong attitude toward wealth. Materialism is a sinful or wrong attitude toward the things that we have. So there's no misunderstanding. Let me say right off the bat, when the Bible speaks against the sin of materialism, the issue is not how much, how much a person has. See, God, he's not concerned with how much money you have in the bank. He doesn't care necessarily about what kind of car you have or how many cars are in your garage. He doesn't care about where you buy your clothes. He doesn't care about that kind of stuff whatsoever. See, what's interesting about it is some of God's choicest servants were, in fact, very wealthy people. And we've got to be careful that we don't mis misinterpret what God tells us as far as wealth is concerned. Just this morning as I was getting ready to come to church, I'm, I'm flipping through the TV and there was a guy on there and he was swearing that God had a desire that every person be wealthy materially. And I just, I, I cringe and I shake my head at that because, yes, the Bible teaches that there were those who were very wealthy people. I think of Solomon. Solomon had more gold come out of one mine than you and I could ever imagine in a lifetime. He was worth more in one year than the accumulation of everything that Bill Gates has up to this point. Solomon was a very wealthy man, the wealthiest the world has ever seen. And all you've got to do is read in First and Second Kings how wealthy he was. The world recognized how wealthy he was. They came from all over the world to just see the splendor of his wealth. The queen of Sheba said, wow, I've heard all this great stuff about you, man, and I had to come to check it all out. And you know what she said? Most of the time, our reputations exceed reality. You go, man, I heard a lot about you, but I don't see it. <laughs> you know, but, but, but when, when Sheba, you know what I'm saying? But when Sheba went to Solomon, she said, man, I heard all about you, and it doesn't do any justice to what I'm seeing. This is mind-boggling. Solomon was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. In fact, the devil recognized that Satan himself knew God was the one who enriched Job. Remember what he said in the first chapter of Job? He said, no wonder Job loves you. Think about it. Look at everything you've given him. He is so blessed materially, there's no wonder he loves you. Man, if you would do that for everybody, everybody would love you. His accusation was that those who have a lot of things love God only because they know God gave it to them. The irony of all that is that most people who have a lot of things have no use for God because they didn't even recognize that it comes from the hand of God. Think about it. Isn't that what happened with the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus and said, what do I got to do to get to heaven? Jesus said, obey the law, be obedient to the commandments of God. And he said, man, I do all that stuff. Jesus said, really? Well, then I got one challenge for you. Why don't you take everything you own and sell it and come and follow me? What did, what did he expose in his heart? He exposed in his heart the love of money, that he put money before his relationship with God. When he was challenged to give up everything and follow Jesus, he said, I can't do that. And he put his head down and he turned and walked away. Why? Because he was guilty of the sin of materialism. And his materialism blinded him to an invitation that was given by the God of the universe to come and follow him. But see, Satan said, hey, God, the reason that you know, this guy loves you is because you've given him so much. So God said, I'll prove to you that's not true. Take it all away. And what's interesting about it is at the end of all of this, God doubled everything he had originally given to him. The Bible was very clear that God is one who blesses. God doesn't, didn't apologize for enriching Job. 
The Bible says it's a blessing of the Lord that makes rich, Proverbs 10.22. Moses told the Israelites that it was God who's given you the power to make wealth. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that, that has not been given to you? Your ability to make wealth is given to you as a gift from God. There's nothing in the Bible that discourages property ownership. In fact, everything in the Word of God indicates that God blesses those who work hard and diligently and do what they're called to do as far as a diligent effort as far as work is concerned. If you look at the Old Testament, there were several laws that were laid out about those who owned property, how they were to farm their property. And if they did and they worked hard and they were diligent, that God would bless them and they would prosper. In the New Testament, Jesus told parables often and often spoke of personal property, ownership rights, and possession. And he never criticized anybody who owned property or what they did with it unless what they were doing was wrong before God. In the New Testament, it's the same all through the epistles. There's nothing in the Bible that discourages private property or ownership. In fact, God blesses those who work diligently, and he blesses the, the, the fruit of our labor. So materialism is not how much you have, but instead it's how, much you, how you treat what you have and how you respond to the God who gave it to you. You follow that? It's not what you have, but it's how you treat what you have and how you respond to the God who gave it to you. That's what materialism was all about. If you have a wrong attitude toward what you have, you can be poor and still be guilty of materialism. You could have, in comparison, nothing, but still hold on to it like it's everything. And obviously, the more things you have, the greater the trap could be because there's more things that can take our attention away from following God's leading in our life. So as we look at all this, we need to recognize and understand the question I have for you is this. How do you know if you're guilty of materialism? There's one indicator that is greater than probably any others, but we're going to take a look at several of them. And that is this. From what we've just learned in James chapter 4 and now James chapter 5, if there is a conflict between God's leading in your life and your desire for material things, and God comes in second place, you've got a problem. Follow that? If God is leading you to... Make a job change. Make a career change. Uh, to be more generous in your giving. If he's leading you to put money away in savings for the future, for the rainy day. If he's leaving, leading you in a direction to help someone who is in need. If he's doing any of those things and you're saying, thank you anyway, but I'm going to do what I want to do with what I have, then you've got a serious problem that needs to be addressed. We see it all the time. We wrestle with it all the time. I see people all the time that God's leading them in a certain direction, but they can't give up the material things because they're afraid God won't provide for them in the future. And so his will is to lead them in a certain area, but they go, no, I don't trust you. I'm just going to hang on to what I have. I see people who say, man, you know what? We're living up to here and our eyeballs in debt and we're, and we're not enjoying life and there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no contentment. We've got nothing but problems in our business. We've got nothing but problems in our personal life. And yet, you know what? What we need to do is we need to downsize we need to start selling things. We need to get into a, a situation where we can honor God with our finances. And yet there's a struggle and a constant battle that takes place that, no, we can't do that. We would rather continue to be miserable than to trust God's leading in this area of our life. Because we can't believe we could be happy and at peace and content, with contentment without what? Without stuff. See, the sin of materialism, which is interesting, is what God calls covetousness is listed in the Bible alongside some other sins in 1 Corinthians 5, 11, 6, 9 through 10, sins that we wouldn't be got, caught dead committing to some degree. 
that's listed with covetousness, is listed with drunkenness, murder, swindling, homosexuality. And it's not a very nice list. But some of us would look at the list and say, wow, how can anybody do that kind of stuff? And here we are, we are just as guilty, and sin is sin, and rebellion is rebellion, and it doesn't matter how it's manifested, but what we need to recognize and understand is that all sin is wrong and an abomination before God, and we've got to deal with it. So whether it's the sin of materialism or the rest of the sin that's listed in that passage, we need to ask ourselves this very difficult question. Am I, by what this book says, as I look into the mirror intently and it looks and reflects who I really am, am I guilty of the sin of materialism and I've got to deal with it? We're going to answer that question, but not right now. The second thing, we'll come back to it. The second thing that we need to look at is this, that materialism also involves a loss of what I would call perspective. A loss of perspective. Proverbs 11.28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall. Jesus said it's almost impossible for rich people to get to heaven. Mark 10.25. And that was a, a response to the rich young ruler who had much and turned around and walked away from Jesus. It says it's not simply because they're rich, but because they've been seduced by the power of wealth and gold now crowds out God in their life. And that's why the rich young ruler turned and walked from the invitation that Jesus gave him. So it has nothing to do with the amount. It has to do with the attitude toward what we have. And so as we look at this, this loss of perspective is an interesting thing. I came across a story that I think will illustrate it. Apparently there was a young man who had finally got some success in business as we would equate it in our culture. He's got a little bit of money. He went out and he finally bought the new sports car he's always wanted. He bought this nice new BMW. Man, it was sweet. And he thought he'd take it for a ride up the coast. And he was going up Coast Highway. And he was just enjoying life. In fact, not only did he have the car, but now he had the cell phone too. So he was enjoying the car with the top down. He was enjoying the cell phone. Man, this was sweet. What a great day. He was driving and, and he got hung up on a phone conversation and he kind of lost track of where he was going. Swerved off the side of the road and rolled down an embankment. As he's rolling down the bank, what he's thinking, man, I'm going to die. So he tries to jump out of his car. He jumps out of the car, but he gets his arm caught in the door and his arm gets torn off of the, in, the, in the accident. Well, a truck driver is falling up the road. goes, man, he stops, runs over, looks at the guy and the guy's bleeding and he he goes, oh man, and all here's the guy saying, it's my BMW, my BMW, my BMW. And the trucker's going, man, your BMW, man, look, you're going to bleed to death. Your arm got ripped right off at the socket. And the guy goes, ah, ah, where's my Rolex? Where's my Rolex? That's a loss of perspective. And we all get that way sometimes. You know, but our, you know, but think about it. But yet, our finances can be anything but insignificant. How many of you honestly fight constantly over finances, arguments over things, what to do with them, whether to buy them, whether to not to buy them? The answer is always what? Well, we need to make more money. It's pretty obvious. The problem is we know what our expenses are. But the income category isn't what it's supposed to be. We never stay, amen. We never start with the income. We always start with the expenses. And we try to put a budget together based on that. And then most of us go, well, budget's not going to work, so we're not going to use a budget. <laughs> that must be the problem. It's the budget. That's what's creating the problem. How can I be out of money? Still got checks in the register. Here we go, checkbook. There's still checks. You know, and so we, we struggle with this and we, we, we argue about these things. And what's fascinating about all of it is, as we look at these arguments, the root of all of it, there is someone, if not both, who have a problem with the sin of materialism. Think about it. 
could you really give up if you believe that God was leading you in that direction? Could you really give up all that you've accumulated up to this point in your life and to turn and to walk from it? If you can't, and you know it would be a struggle, then you know exactly what it is that we're talking about and we have to deal with. If we can't walk from everything that God has given us to follow God's leading in our life, whatever that is, then we've got a problem where our possessions are possessing us and God does not have our heart. So we need to look at this. We need to go through this. We need to understand this. And so we look at this and say the concept of materialism basically is a sinful attitude toward wealth. We put it before God. We put it before God's leading in our life. We put it before the, the principles and the precepts that are clearly outlined in the Bible. We put our possessions before what God has to say. And at the root of that arrogance is, is a mentality that says, Lord, not your will be done, but mine will be done in this particular case. The second thing is a loss of perspective. We do not see material things as God wants us to see them and he helps us to try to relate to what he wants us to see in the mirror that he calls the Bible. And he wants us to read it, to gaze intently into it, and to make whatever adjustments are appropriate because only as we're obedient to him do we find contentment and joy and peace in our heart. So as we look at this, now we see in chapter 5 there's going to be, uh, not, not only do we see the concept of materialism, but we're going to see that there's a price to be paid. There is a cost of materialism that God clearly identifies throughout this particular passage. You know, business people, we often talk about, uh, you know, the cost of doing business. And we always talk about the expenses that are related to the cost of doing business. There are certain costs, any of us who are in business recognize that there are certain costs to do business. As a contractor, we, we recognize that, you know, liability insurance and workman's compensation and, and uh, indirect cost of supervision and all those things, that's a cost of doing business. Every job that we enter into, there's costs that are, that are, that are entailed in that particular endeavor. And we need to recognize and understand there's a cost to do business as we discuss uh, expenses. Now, there's also a cost that God warns us about that's attached to our decisions about money and the sin of materialism. And it comes with a price tag as well. And so as you look at this, go back to James chapter 5, and I'm going to show you some of the costs of materialism that God wants us to be aware, about, aware of. Because it, like any sin, there is a price that has to be paid for our disobedience and choice to be disobedient to God. The first cost is this. We will be miserable. There is misery attached with the sin of materialism. James, 1, James 5, 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. That's not good. That's not a good thing. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. He says, your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you stored up your treasure. Notice what God is saying here. There is misery attached when all of our faith and trust is in stuff. Things. Money. Position. Careers. Things we own. There is misery attached to it. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of happiness attached to some of those things too. Is there not? That's why there's such an attraction to it. But you've got to understand from God's perspective what he's trying to get across to us, and that's this. There is misery because when we put our faith and trust in those things, they will surely disappoint us eventually. 
That's the point. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about, man? Some of the stuff I got is making me really happy today. I drove in in a happy mobile. <laughs> so, but we, well, what God is trying to get across to us is this. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. He wants us to understand that it's temporary at best. See, in that particular culture, those who were very wealthy had a number of outfits that they could wear and demonstrate and parade before people. Garments were very expensive. And the average person in the Middle East during the times that the scripture was written would own maybe four garments in a lifetime. Not wear four in a day. They'd own four in a lifetime. And those who were wealthy could put on any, as many as they want and parade it around and invite people to their parties so they could see how wealthy they really were. And so what he was saying is, man, you had, all these, you had all this wealth, but you know what? Now it's all moth-ridden. They put their trust in the uncertainty of riches. And if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, listen to this as it applies to what we're trying to say here in the area of misery. Listen carefully. 1 Timothy 6, look at verse 17. Paul is telling Timothy, a pastor, to instruct those, teach those, listen up. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or arrogant or think they're better than somebody else because of what they have. He says, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You notice we said, instruct those not to be conceited or to put their hope in the uncertainty of riches. Why? Because they will certainly fail. A wrong attitude toward material things is when we start to put our hope in riches instead of our hope and our trust in God. What's the right attitude? Job had the best attitude that, I, that I've seen in Scripture, and that's this. Job had everything materially taken from him as a test from God to demonstrate that Job's heart was right before God, that, God, that he loved God for who he is, for not, not what he's given him. So different than many of us. Oh, I'll go to church. I see it all the time in, in, in athletics. You know, I'm on sidelines. I see it. I see it watching sporting events. I saw it yesterday watching, uh, I was watching Penn State uh, play Minnesota. And I saw that, you know, the guys from Minnesota were ready to kick a field goal two team in the nation and knock them out of chance for a national championship and what do i see on the sideline i see a whole bunch of guys all these minnesota gophers and they all had their head buried in the ground which is what gophers do and they they had their they had their heads and they were buried in the ground they were holding hands and they were praying they're praying they're cutting all kind of deals with god i know because i've done it myself <laughs> lord please let it go through the upright and i'll go to chapel next week i'll go to bible study next week i'll go to church next week i swear i'll even give 10 bucks an offering i don't know what it is but i will do it i'm cutting you a deal and we see that. And we put our uncertainty in riches instead of our certainty in God. And Job's attitude, which is the right attitude, what did Job say? He said this, you know what? Hey, look, naked I've come from my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to return. So listen up carefully. I will bless the Lord and praise Him. Even though He takes everything from me, I still love Him, and not the stuff that He's given me. Can you make the same claim? See, because if you can't, you will eventually be miserable. Why do I know you'll be miserable? Because your resources will begin to diminish. We see that. 
the silver and gold, and going back to James chapter 5, we see all of that, man. It's just everything's falling apart. Things are getting old. That happy mobile you drove in on all of a sudden, man, it's starting to break down more and more regularly. And it's like, I don't want to get it fixed anymore. I think it's time to get a new one. You know how it is. It's like some of you, you know, it's like, hey, oh, our windows are dirty at our house. Let's sell. You know, <laughs> why clean them when we can go buy another house? Um, you know, it, it, and we see this all the time, but he's saying that our resources will diminish. And you know why they'll diminish? Because God has a way of breaking stuff. He'll just tweak your car. He'll pop your water heater. You'll lose your job. Your investments will go in the toilet. Your stock will take a dive. Microsoft will be called a monopoly. <laughs> there's, there's always some way that God will do something to get our attention. And all that stuff that we put our faith and trust and hope in is going to fail us, no doubt about it. Anybody here that's ever owned anything, you know it breaks. And you're so excited about it when it wasn't broken. And it's like, why did it break? Maybe because, you know what, you're putting a little bit too much time and, and, and attention to what? Your baby. This is my baby. No, it's a car, man. I mean, some of you are like that with your pets until you have children. I mean, we see that all the time. We're dealing with younger people. They got these dogs, man. They're like kids. That's a dog. Wait till you have a child. It'll become a dog. Watch this transformation take place. <laughs> that, that child of yours, right? The first time you have a baby and that dog goes to lick your kid's face, it's like, hey, get the, get the dog out of there. Why is that? Because all of a sudden our perspective changes. Number three, our character erodes. When, when, when the cost of materialism is that we lose our character and our integrity of people around us. It becomes more important to make money than it becomes to do what's right before God. I see it all the time. We see it in business all the time. We see people we don't know. I don't know. I only know a limited number of things. And I don't know if you come to fix something in my house, whether it was really broken, needed fixed or not. I don't know. I don't know anything about cars. That's why you want to take it somewhere where you can trust the person who's going to fix it because you just don't know. But if the motivation is to make money, all of a sudden they start, quote, fixing stuff that was never broke. Why? Because the passion is there to make money rather than to do what's right before God. We've got to be careful because our culture is motivated by making money. Only thing that's important is the bottom line. That's why we see restructuring all the time. That's why we see these, quote, downsizes all the time. It has nothing to do with it. That's why you get people that worked in a place for 20 or 30 years and you throw them out in the street. Why? Because you've got to answer the stockholders. There is nothing to do with integrity. It's everything is to do with driven the bottom line, how to make money. God says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver or gold. Proverbs 22.1 Also we notice there's a cost of materialism and that's this, that there's an opportunity that's lost. And the opportunity that's lost also ties in with judgment and that has to do with the, the idea of this, that you and I, as believers, I'll start there, and, and, and if you've never come to faith in Christ and you don't even know what that means, then this has nothing to do with you. But as a believer who believes we are accountable to God for the things that we do, and that's not what gets us into heaven, it's only faith and faith in Christ alone that gets us there. But we believe and we understand that we have to give an account for the things that we do as believers until the time that we die. The judgment seat of Christ that we will stand before, the bema seat, we will give an account for how we redeem the time and the possessions that God has given us. The Bible clearly teaches that. That you and I have to answer. Here's the problem. Once time is spent... Once money is spent, it is spent for all of eternity. That decision is made, and it's made forever. And we must redeem the time and must redeem the possessions that God has entrusted to us wisely. That is the parable of the servant, where he said that I've entrusted to my servants certain amounts of good, 
so that when I am gone, they will invest it toward my kingdom and my purposes and my leading in their life. And when I return, I will judge them for what they did with what I gave them. We need to recognize and understand that there's opportunity that's lost if we do not have a a heavenly or eternal perspective of why God has given us the things that he has given us. And what's interesting is, you know, in dealing with people who have a tendency on our cultural level to have a lot of stuff, there's one thing that's always asked of people who are blessed immensely, and that's this. God, why? Why have you chosen to bless us with the material possessions that you've given us? Why am I making $5 million a year doing the same thing that a guy in the position right next to me in the outfield is doing, making a million a year or $2 million a year or 300000 or whatever it is? God, why are you blessing me? He said, very good reason. Because he wants you to use it the way that he tells you to if you would just honor him and listen to his leading in your life. It's obvious he trusts you with it. Now you must do the things that he wants you to do in a manner that's pleasing to him. That answers the question. So you're sitting there going, you know what? I don't have a problem with this. Hey, I've never met a person yet that said they did. That's why we've got to look at something objective to see whether we have a problem with this. I talk to a lot of people. I don't have a problem with material things. I'm not hung up on material things. Really? Well, let's find out if that's true. The clues of materialism as outlined in the Bible. Okay, you ready? Let's take a look at them. Go back to James chapter 5 again and look at what the clues are. What does the sin of material look like in practical application? The Bible gives these clues. Number one, hoarding. Hoarding. Some of you go, I'm not a hoarder. So really? Well, wait a minute. Let's see what happened here. It says, your gold and silver, blah, 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 blah. They have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and you'll consume you like flesh, like fire. It's in the last days you've stored up or hoarded up all these things. Luke chapter 12, we read a couple of weeks ago about the farmer who man was making, his crops were so large, he was knocking barns down, building bigger barns, building more barns, building bigger barns. He was keeping all of it. He said, look what I'm going to do with all this stuff, man. I'm set for life. And then God said, you fool, today your very soul is required of you. Oops, end of program. So he's saying a hoarding. Now, some of you would say, well, I'm not really a hoarder, but I think that all of us to some degree. Now, listen very carefully. Jesus said that, you know what? It is proper to save. It is proper to meet the needs of others. It is proper to do what God requires of us, to be generous and to give, to meet the needs around us. It's proper to save up for a rainy day. The Bible, we have to take it in full context. There are very valuable things as far as saving is concerned. But saving and hoarding are two different things. The hoarder does what he does because it benefits him and him alone. And there's a huge difference between hoarding and saving. So as we look at this, we need to ask ourselves the question, am I hoarding things and putting my faith and trust in the things rather than in the one who has given me the things to manage on his behalf? It's a great question to ask. Are you a hoarder? Halloween, several years ago. Live back east, man. This is when Halloween was Halloween, man. When they actually had like big old candy bars that they gave out. You know, and I didn't know what Halloween was. Everybody was doing it and I was doing it too because I didn't know the difference. So I'm out, man, Halloween. And you know what? And we didn't just go Halloween with this little, little sissy little bag. No, man, we got king-sized pillow sheets. Big ones, man. Big ones and doubled them up. And we'd go five, six miles. We'd just go, make a big old thing. Just like that, man. We'd just fill this thing with candy. And as I was studying and preparing this, I was reminded of this. This is kind of the, who I was. This is what I was all about. So you get this big old thing, and you can't hardly even carry it back. You're dragging it. You're dragging like a body, you know, down the street. But they didn't know if it was part of the act or not. So you're just dragging this thing, and you get it. And then when you get it, you've got to hide it in your house. Because you've got brothers and sisters. 
And you got people, as soon as you walk in, they go, hey, is there any of those big old Reese's cups in there? No. Didn't get one of those. Hard to believe. Look at that. Not one Reese's Pieces. Whatever it is. I didn't even have those there. We had big old Hershey bars. But, but it was like, and you hoard it. And you hang on to it. And you hide it. And you bury it in your closet. And you sneak little things. And you do it for like two months. And then, and then it turns into winter in Pennsylvania. And the heater comes on. And all kind of bad stuff starts happening. And then you open up the bag. And there's living creatures in the bag. They're called maggots. And you can't eat no more. Well, you can try to brush it off. But I don't recommend it. And you can't eat anymore. And God reminded me of that. It's like, man, remember how selfish you used to be? He goes, look at this. That's exactly what's going to happen to all your stuff. It's going to rust. It's going to rot. It's going to consume your flesh. It's going to just get worn out. And you didn't even share with people that you could have shared with. Why? Because you're so selfish that you live just to please yourself. The farmer did it. I did it. Maybe you're doing it. And you're sitting there going, I don't hoard anything. I don't hoard anything. Really? Oh, well, let me ask you some questions. <sighs> you wear everything in your closets? That's not fair. See, you liked it when it was about me. But now it's about you. You wear everything in your closets. That's not hoarding. What is that? That's memories. <laughs> That's, what do you call them? I don't know what it is. It's memories. I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to return to that form someday. That's my goal. I'm going to, I swear. I don't want to give it up because you never know. God is a God of miracles. Can you think of anybody who might be able to use it? Think about it. Isn't one person's rubbish another person's treasure? because of perspective alone? Do you realize how blessed we are? And we hoard stuff. And it's going to cry out as a testimony against the direction that God was trying to lead us in our life. How many of you got those living rooms like we do? That it's like a, it's like a museum. <laughs> Only thing we're missing is the little rope thing. You know what I mean? That's like, and to your left, you'll see where, you know, Lincoln slept or something. I don't know. But what is the purpose of that? The purpose of that is to make a statement when people walk into your house. Wow, what a nice house. Wow, you must have money. Wow, that's why you never open it real, real wide when somebody's coming to try to solicit a donation from you. Uh, sorry, I wouldn't have anything. It's all tied up in our museum an investment. So, I mean, but why? I mean, why do we do the things that we do? It's this American perspective. Listen to this story. American businessman was at a pier of a small coastal Mexican village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked, and inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. The American complimented the Mexican on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took him to catch him. He said it required only a little while. The American then asked why he didn't stay out longer and catch more fish. The Mexican said, well, I have enough to support my family. The American then asked, well, what did you do with the rest of your time? 
The Mexican fisherman said, well, I sleep late, I fish a little, play with my children, take a siesta with my wife Maria, stroll into the village each evening where I sip a little wine and play my guitar with my amigos. The American couldn't believe it. He said, wait a minute, I'm a Harvard MBA and I can help you. You should spend more time fishing with, and with the proceeds buy a bigger boat. And with the proceeds of a bigger boat, you can buy a fleet of boats. And then eventually you can have a whole fleet of boats and then you could, what you could do is you could catch, instead of having a middleman, you could sell directly to the processor, eventually operating your own cannery. You'd control the product, the process, processing and distribution. And, and you would need to leave the small coastal village and move to Mexico City, then eventually L.A. And ultimately, you want to be in New York City because, man, that's the hub of everything as far as the world is concerned. The Mexican fisherman said, but, senor, how long will all this take? The American replied, only 15 to 20 years. He says, but what then, senor? The American laughed and said, that's the best part of this whole program. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO, an initial public offering, sell your company stock to the public, you'd become very rich, and you would make millions. He said, millions, senor? Then what? The American said, oh, then that's the best part. You could retire, move to a small coastal fishing village in Mexico. <laughs> you could sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take a siesta with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings, and you could sip wine and play guitar with your amigos. What? What is wrong with us? The interesting thing is that neither of these perspectives are necessarily right because neither of them consider God. But God, what do you want me to do? Where are you leading me? What do you want me to do with the resources that you've given me? Why do I have what I have? The clues of materialism are hoarding to our own detriment. Using others to make more money and not to honor our obligations. In James chapter 5, notice what he says, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which have been withheld by you cries out against you. And their outcry has reached the God, of the Lord of the Sabbath. You notice what he's saying. Hey, you know what? There's an injustice here. The injustice is using other people for your own personal benefit. Having no integrity. Not honoring your obligations. Not paying your bills or paying your debts. You say, but I don't have that problem. Well, yeah, you don't have, okay, maybe you don't have laborers in the field that you're withholding their pay, but let me ask you something. Do you owe anybody any money and you have the means to repay them and you're not doing it? Why not? You got money in the bank, but you owe somebody else money and you're not paying them back. Why not? Because you're guilty of the sin of materialism. Because God says, owe man nothing, but to every man should just owe to God because God pr provides and supplies all of our needs. Saying, if you owe somebody, honor your debt. And you do it. I see it all the time in construction. It's disgusting. It makes me sick. I see people that enter into contracts with us. They want us to do certain work. We do certain work. They want us to do extras or change orders. And they don't have time to write them up. We'll get to it. Get to it. And then you do all the work. And at the end of the job, they say, yeah, I know we agreed to all of it. But you know what? Uh, how about taking 50 cents on a dollar? Why? Because, you know what? If you don't take 50 cents on the dollar, then you can sue us. And it's going to cost you more to try to recover it. So just cut your losses. Learn a lesson from it. And take 50 cents on the dollar. Oh, and what's that called in our culture? Shrewd business. You knew what the contract said. You knew everything should have been in writing. You know you shouldn't have done it. That's shrewd business. Not to God it's not. It's an abomination. It's a sin of materialism, and all sin comes with a price tag. Using other people is a sign of someone who has their priorities wrong. Perverting justice is another thing. He says, look what he says. You know what, man? Perverting justice, verse 6. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man and he doesn't resist you. Think about it. 
Think about how many things go on in our world today. Some people tell me the Bible's not relevant. Read it sometime. The sin of using others, what do you think slavery is? It's happening all over the world. What do you think sweatshops are? It's happening all over the world. It's happening in our own country. And we paid a price for it and continue to to this day. Using others for our own benefit so that we can become more wealthy, so we can have more stuff. Perverting justice is all part of it. We see it all the time. I'm reading through the newspaper. I can't believe what I'm reading because it's so... It, 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 I mean, it's just like right out of this page of the Scripture. The LA Times, 10, on October 29th, title, Greasy Palms Are Rampant in Russia. The whole article focused on bribery and how far you can get in the Russian economy if you just know the right people and who to slap some money into their hands. They'll pervert justice for you in a second. And you know what? Don't be so naive. It happens all over the place. Why does it happen? Because the root problem is a love of money rather than a love of God. Having stuff instead of having integrity. Buying things instead of having a good reputation. Indulgence, <clears throat> indulgence is part of it. Notice what he said. You've lived luxuriously in verse 5 on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasures. He says as you look at this thing, he says lived a life of wanton pleasures. You know what he's saying? That we never deny ourselves. Self-denial is part of the Christian life. Self-control and self-denial. Jesus said that we should deny ourselves. Take up our cross daily and follow him. That we should deny some things in our life. That we should say no to ourselves. It's easy to say no to our kids. It's easy to say no to other people because that's good for them. It'll help them to grow. It'll help develop character. Help them put their priorities in the right place, you know. But how about saying no to you? We need to deny ourselves. People here didn't. Whatever they wanted, they got. And you know why they got it? Because they could afford it. How many times have you heard that argument in our culture? What can you afford to pay? If you can pay X amount of dollars a month, then you don't need to deny yourself that. You don't have to wait on God and trust in God. You don't have to pray to God that He'll meet your needs in some miraculous way or some way that you never thought. You don't have to trust in God. Why? Because you can trust in Visa. You can trust in credit. You don't have to wait. We have a whole culture of people that, you know what, they see what their parents had and they worked hard for it for 20 and 30 years. They paid cash for all of it. And we got a whole generation coming up saying, I'm not waiting 20 or 30 years. I got credit. And I can afford the monthly payments. And the borrower becomes a slave to the lender. And then you know what happens? You don't have the freedom to follow God's leading in your life because you're entrapped by debt. We need to recognize that and understand that. All right, the good news. Let's put it all together. Well, that's all good news too. And the reason I say that is because some of you came here today and you thought you weren't guilty of this. Now you're sitting there going, wow, I do have something there after all. And I need to deal with it. Praise God. That's why you come. That's why God exposes a lamp under our feet. Boom, spotlight right on you today. Here we go. How do we apply it? Oh, I know you're scared now, are you? Number one, here's how we apply it. Number one, the cure for materialism. Number one, acknowledge God as owner. Acknowledge God as owner. And what I mean by that is very simple. Recognize that everything you have has been given to you by God. There's a thing that you don't, there's a thing that you have that hasn't come from the hand of God. The earth is the Lord and everything that's in it. 
You say, but I worked hard for it. Great, praise God. But you know what? How'd you get the ability to work? You know, I came up with this idea. Where'd you get the brains? Don't even take me here because you're going to lose. You're going to step up, take me on, but you're going to lose. Because everything we have has been given to us by God. Acknowledge him as owner. You know what I recommend is that, you know what, every, every person at some point in their life just stop one day and just turn everything over to God. Just give him possession because it's his anyway. And all he's doing is entrusting it to you to manage it, but it's not yours anyway. So every decision you make as far as buying and spending, as far as uh, saving, as far as uh, giving, all those decisions are spiritual decisions. It's a spiritual barometer. And you've got to ask God, God, what do you want me to do with this? This is yours. What do you want me to do with it? Think about it. If, you're, if you have investments or you have somebody who manages, quote, your money, or you have somebody who represents you in a professional way like an attorney or an accountant or whatever, don't they call you and ask you for your input before they make decisions in your life? They have a responsibility to do that. Hey, look, this is my advice. This is what I think you should do. But the final decision is yours. Why? Because it's yours. Well, what they don't know is it's not even ours. It's all God's. So why shouldn't we do the same thing? Lord, this is all your stuff. What do you want me to do with it? I've got to acknowledge you as the owner, and it will keep me from running rampant and doing things that you don't want me to do, getting out ahead of you without asking you first. So acknowledge God as the owner. I like this. I ran into this. You know, but some of us, some of us think we can take it with us. Check this out. Great cartoon. I love this. Is that great? I love this stuff, man. There's a guy dying, obviously, on his way to heaven. Angel grabs him, flips him upside down, and just shakes him out, all his money dropping. Like, hey, nice try. I like that. You know what, though? But what's interesting about it is, is that we can't take it with us, but we can send it ahead. We can send it ahead. And we need to recognize and understand that. We need to acknowledge God as owner of everything, and we need to consider others more important than ourselves. Consider others more important than ourselves. Psalm 62.10, we find wise words to those who want to be mature Christians when we read, if... The riches increase in your life. Do not set your heart upon them, but continue to trust in God to give you the wisdom to make the right decisions. We can't take it with us, but we can send it ahead. And I like that, because that's the only way that it beats us there. In closing, one day an old man asked a young man, he says, uh, what are your plans for life? The young man replied, well, I'm going to go to college, get a good education so I can get a good job, make a lot of money, the old man said, and then what? He says, well, then I'm going to get married. I'm going to raise my children. I'm going to send them to the best possible college so they can get a good education, get good jobs, and make a lot of money. The old man said, and then what? He said, well, after the kids are gone, my wife and I, we're going to travel around the world. We're going to take up a good hobby. Then we're going to retire, and we're going to live off the investments that we've made. The old man said, that's great. He says, but then what? The young man looked at him and said, well, then I guess it's over and I'll die. And he said, exactly. And then what? And then what? And he looked at him and he couldn't answer that. And then what? You know, this last few weeks I've seen people who have accomplished great things in this world be called out of this life into the next. We see Payne Stewart and we see all the accomplishments that he accomplished when he was a professional golfer. All the, the winnings were there, the money that he won, the trophies that were there. Everything was there you could read about in the sports section. And then not long after that, we see Walter Payton passed away, passed from this life to the next. And we can read the newspaper and see all the yardage that he gained, all the NFL records that he said, everything that he did. And, you know, and I ask myself the same question as we get to the end of all of it. He says, and then what? 
And after you've accomplished all the things you want to accomplish, you've bought all the things that you want to buy, you've had all the positions that you thought you'd have, you've enjoyed all the hobbies and all the travel and everything, and then what? Well, then one day I'll die. And then what? For those of you who have never thought about it, now's a good time. Because the Bible says, and then you'll give an account to the God who created you. For those of you who don't know what will happen to you, the Bible says that you are dead in your sins. The wages of sin is death, that's why you die. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you would just believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and because of that you're forgiven by God, and that God loved you even when you were running from Him and rebellion against Him, even when you were guilty of the sin of materialism, He still sought you out with a message of hope and love and redemption. He sent Jesus Christ to die just for you and for nobody else. That for whosoever would believe in him, speaking of Jesus, they wouldn't perish, but they'd have everlasting life. If you don't know what will happen the moment that you die, I strongly urge you to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. For those of us who have at some point in the past done that, then I also encourage you that we need to be growing in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And then what? One day we'll stand not before the great white throne judgment, but before the Bema seat of Christ, and we will give an account for the time that God has given us from the moment we trusted in Christ until the moment that he calls us home. We will give an account for the time and how we used it. We will certainly give an account for all the possessions that God has put into our hands and how we used it. My challenge to you is you need to be thinking about why it is that God has given you what he's given you. And there's a purpose and there's a reason and that's so that you can bring him glory and honor in this lifetime so that you can use the things that he's given you to attract and draw people to the love and the salvation and the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. Because there's no other thing that we need to trust more than trust in him because all our stuff will fade away. And one day it will be a testament or a testimony against us or for us as to whether we really believe what God told us to do. Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for this time. We thank you for the many blessings that we have and all the ways that you bless us materially. We also recognize our responsibility now as we look at it. We recognize things about our life that maybe as we came here this morning, we didn't even see. But God, help us to be obedient as we deal with the truth, and we know that the truth as we apply it will make us free. God, help us to be people who are generous towards you, who are generous toward those around us, who save for a rainy day, who invest for the future, not so we can hoard it up because you have told us to do so. Help us to be those who are generous toward giving so that your, your word can be preached throughout the world, that many can hear the love and, and the joy that they can have in coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God, we just thank you for that. We know it's a responsibility, but a blessing as well. And we just praise you for all that you give us. In Christ's name, amen.